0: Good morning. You know, it's my last Sunday, so I'm going to try it one more time. Good morning. Thank you. Um, I guess it maybe it is hard to be exuberant after we've just confessed our sin, perhaps. But uh, we've come to the last section of the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 7. It's hard to believe that we started going through this just... Uh, A few weeks back, and I want to take just a quick moment to say thank you so much. Our family is very grateful that you would invite us back and have us here to serve in this capacity. And so uh, that has been a gift to us. So thank you for that. Uh, And I hope that you've been reading along this morning because uh, it would give you a chance to give our passage this morning some thought. Because it deserves some thought. Uh, these verses that we're going to read this morning are particularly unsettling and provocative, and I have really wrestled with what to say and how to say it. Uh, why? Because Jesus is warning his disciples about a very present danger uh, to those who are pursuing the kingdom. Uh, many are deceived. They're deceived by the crowd or by a false teaching or even by their own hearts. And Jesus is making us aware of these dangers because he wants to protect his children from being led astray. And so he's speaking to his followers, these sober warnings. He's speaking to people just like you and me. So Christ's community, we need to listen to these words. So for those who are able to stand, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 7, verses 13 through 29. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. When Jesus finished and when Jesus finished these sayings the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes it's our practice to Christ's community to take a moment to uh, consider uh, the reading of God's word so please be seated and we'll take a moment to let God's word speak to you This is the time in the service when we dismiss the kindergartners and first graders. I wonder if you've noticed when you look around that our world is full of warnings. There are warnings everywhere. You'll probably see some before you leave today. There's a warning on your rearview mirror. There's uh, warnings on road signs all here and there giving us directions. And why is our world so full of warnings? Well, because our world can be a dangerous place. And where the dangers are small, the warnings are small. You know, there's a, there's a tag on your mattress that has a warning. Like, don't take off this tag. Now, I've got to confess, I don't know what's going to happen to you if you do, okay? That's a small, small danger there that I don't think we have to be concerned about. But as the dangers get bigger, the warnings get bigger. So when you go to Wrightsville Beach... You'll see at almost every access, you know, these signs warning you about the dangers of rip currents and uh, kind of what to do if you encounter one and when they appear, that kind of thing. Or consider all the activity and the alerts and uh, the news that comes on our TVs if there is a hurricane that's headed for Riceville Beach and headed for Wilmington. Now, if a warning truly involves life or death, We tend to take that warning pretty seriously. And what are these warnings supposed to do for us? Well, these warnings are designed in some way to protect you. These are not rules to burden your life. They're warnings to protect you. This is why we warn our children not to touch a hot stove or not to chase a ball out into a busy street. Are we trying to burden our children with all of these rules? No, we're trying to protect their lives. And we recognize that they need our protection and our intervention. And that terrible things can happen if there are no parents there to warn them. In the same way, Jesus warns his children of some very real dangers that they will face as they seek life in the kingdom. And these warnings he gives are all the serious kind. Each danger is a life or death situation. He warns his followers in the passage we read about a false path, about false prophets, about a false profession. And these things are dangers because they lead directly away from the kingdom. I'm sure you've experienced some of these dangers. I mean, when you're in school, the the false path is so easy to take. Everybody, you know, this huge mass of people all seem to be doing the same thing, whether it's uh, cheating or whether it is gossiping about someone or whether it is um, doing things that uh, you know uh, that, as a Christian, you're not to do. But there's so many people doing it, and it's, it's, it's so hard to potentially lose your popularity by... By not participating in those things? Is that, is that really a big deal? I mean, it would be so easy to just drift off that narrow path. Or maybe you've experienced some really powerful teaching. I mean, we live in this great technological age where we can download sermons or uh, order tapes or order uh, just about anything from anywhere in the world. And maybe you've be- become interested in this teaching That sounds so good. It's teaching about how God is good and God is love. And and therefore, you know, hell probably isn't real like it talks about in the Bible. Or perhaps the teaching says God wants to bless you. Hey, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you financially and otherwise. And these things sound kind of truthy, but we have to ask, is it the truth? Or maybe you've been confused by the hypocrisy of someone who loudly professes Christ, but there is no evidence anywhere in that person's life that they're a Christian, that they're converted. Maybe you've even wondered that about your own life. Well, in this passage today, Jesus speaks, or Jesus seeks, excuse me, to protect us from these dangerous doctrines that are designed to drag us away from the faith and we need his warnings because jesus christ knows there's a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to death and because jesus is directing his followers to eternal life in the kingdom we must take his warnings seriously so what does jesus warn his followers about he warns them about a false path false prophets and a false profession Because these detours all lead to the same place. Destruction. And so Jesus informs his followers of these pitfalls and then he sums it up all with a final parable. But we're going to begin by looking at the false path. Verse 13 and 14 say, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it, are few what jesus is saying is that there is a way to heaven and a way to hell there are no other roads and we are all on one of those roads so how do we avoid the false path and find the narrow way to life well according to jesus it requires two things we must enter through jesus christ And then to stay on the road, we must depend on Jesus Christ. So first, to get on the narrow path, we must enter through Jesus Christ. Jesus opens the section with a command. Enter through the narrow gate. The narrow way that leads to life must begin with conversion. There is no other way. I know we live in a world that says there are lots of ways to eternal life and lots of ways to full life. But in contrast, Jesus says, no, the gate is narrow because all must reckon with Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy. He says there's only one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and there's no other way. So we must enter through Jesus Christ. And then we must walk the narrow way, and to do so, we depend on Jesus Christ. Why? Because the way is hard. You know, this word gets translated a variety of ways. It might be more aptly translated constricted. It's like a mountain pass. It involves trials and sufferings, Probably, uh, and few find it, probably because few are looking for it. It might be helpful for you to think of entering the gate as that uh, evangelical decision to surrender your life to Christ. And the way is the lifestyle of repentance that characterizes life as a disciple. The lifestyle of making the difficult decisions to follow Him cannot be carried out apart from His divine help. It requires dependence on Him. So, John's gospel gives us a great illustration of this. When Jesus gives this picture, I'm going to paraphrase John 10, he says, Imagine a flock of sheep. When they come to their home, they must enter through a gate to get into safe pasture. And then Jesus says, I am that gate. It's the only valid way in. But not only that, he also says, in the same breath, I am the good shepherd. He's the one who cares for the sheep. He's not like the hired hand who runs away at any signs of danger. His sheep can depend on him because he's faithful. In fact, his sheep must depend on him for protection against thieves and robbers and wolves. See, in the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of Matthew, though written at different times, they share the same picture that the only way to enter the kingdom is through Jesus Christ. And then we must depend on him for protection and preservation. So what does this mean for us? Well, first and foremost, have you entered through the narrow gate? Have you ever bowed your knee and surrendered your life to Christ? That's the entry point to life, an escape from destruction. And there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And note that I use the word surrendered your life to Christ, not committed. Because if you say that you have committed to your, your life to Christ, that sounds to me like you're in charge of the deal. But if you're in charge, you can't enter through the narrow gate. I mean, it's also possible that you have been to church all your life and yet never truly been converted. You live a very good moral life church-going life, but you've never entered through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ. But remember, brothers, morality plus Jesus is not the gospel. The prerequisite for entry is that you surrender to his lordship, and then you may enter. But as soon as you make it through the narrow gate, you realize you haven't finished, you've only begun. You've just crossed through the Red Sea, and there's still a long way to go before you get to Canaan. And the road's going to be hard because there's a cost. And I think we do people a disservice when we talk about, oh, the free grace uh, or, um, you know, that it's absolutely free to become a Christian. Because, you know, there's a, a sense where that's true, but it can be confusing. You know, it's true that Jesus Christ will welcome any man, woman or child from any background or any condition freely. Yes, it costs you nothing to come to Jesus Christ. But it will cost you everything to follow Him. On the wide road, you can bring all your passions, all your appetites. You don't have to change. There's no cost. You don't have to leave anything behind. But the narrow road will include trials. And it will require repentance and sacrifice and giving up your illusion of control to depend entirely on Him. You see, walking the narrow road is not about following the right rules, but following the right person. His name is Jesus Christ. And He is warning us that there is only one way that leads to life. We must enter through Him and then depend on Him. You see, Jesus is directing His disciples to life in the kingdom. So we must take that warning seriously. So the second warning Jesus gives his followers is about false prophets. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And then he talks about how you can't gather good fruit from a diseased tree and you don't gather bad fruit from a good tree. And then he repeats, You will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew spends five verses here on false prophets. Why the emphasis here? I think Jesus is giving us this warning because false prophets attempt to beckon us off the narrow path. We must wake up to the reality that false prophets really do exist right now, even in our time. And they're dangerous. What is a false prophet? A false prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God without authority or validation from God. And why is a false prophet so dangerous? Well, think about it. If a a leader like Hitler arose, uh, we would hope that no one would be deceived by his teaching, even though sadly many were. But what if a nice, winsome, young, attractive leader arose who knew a lot of the Bible and how to kind of speak the Christian jargon and he or she began to influence a lot of people. That person would be dangerous. And what if they were teaching your children? Or what if they were teaching people who were children in the faith? Because false teachers are dangerous. Jesus warns us about them. And how are we to respond to them? Well, Jesus calls us to judge their fruit. And Jesus calls us to know God's word. So we must judge their fruit. Not judge in the sense of condemn, but judge in the sense of use our judgment. Last week we spoke about the wrong kind of judgment in Matthew 7, but Jesus is calling here for the right kind of judgment, which is in John 7. Jesus says twice the false prophets, you will recognize them by their fruits. So we have to assess what the life and teaching of this person is producing. Jesus is explaining that false teachers may not be distinguishable by their doctrines, so we must test their fruit. That is the deep products of their lives and of their teaching. If inwardly they are ravenous wolves, the way to find out is to judge the fruit of their lives. Jesus wants his followers to understand that a wolf that infiltrates the sheep pen is dangerous and that we need to respond with right judgment because a lot is on the line. And we must also know, secondly, God's word. This is not said explicitly, but I certainly think that it is intimated here. Certainly we would have to know God's word in order to have any kind of standard by which to judge the bad fruit. Jesus notes that thorn bushes can't produce figs, nor can a good tree produce bad fruit. And this prepares us for what God's word says just a few chapters later in Matthew 12, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But there's another reason I think we need to know God's Word. Did you notice which tree got cut down and thrown into the fire? Was it the tree that produced bad fruit? That's not what the text says. The text says any tree that fails to produce good fruit will be thrown into the fire. See, people who run orchards don't put up with rotten trees. They take up space and they're afraid that they're going to spread their rotten disease to the good trees. So we can apply this passage to the teaching we receive, but we also must apply this passage to the teaching we give. And we must know the Bible, both to judge good fruit out there, to judge and to produce good fruit from within ourselves. So I think of a couple of examples. I can remember sitting around. Um, Uh, With my children watching a movie, and we had gotten these uh, Bible, some Bible series on these VHS cassettes, kind of given to us, or we got them at a yard sale or something. And they were very old and looked very traditional, and we were going to sit down and watch Jonah together. And I thought, well, it's a Bible movie. What could be wrong with that? And so here we are watching Jonah, and it's this, you know, kind of old school cartoon, and. uh, Jonah is, uh, disobedient at first, but then, um, after he's swallowed by the whale, he comes back to the city and he preaches, and Nineveh repents. And what happens after that? Jonah celebrates, and he's a hero, and everybody's happy, and they're all cheering, and then they sing the song, and the movie ends. I thought, wait a second. And, you know, I went and grabbed my Bible. Hey, kids, uh, This was a good chance to talk with them about something is that that's that's not what happens in the Bible. And um, that was a case where I had to use my judgment to say, you know what, that's not right. And I don't know if they're trying to, like, make a point or make everybody happy or what they were trying to do with that video. But that was not right. And thankfully, in that circumstance, I knew enough about my Bible to call it out. But there are even more dangerous things than that. And I can remember a decade ago at UNCW, there were a couple of people who became very influential in a parachurch ministry there. And they began teaching things that sounded so good, that had to do with the Holy Spirit and having to do with really walking and living a holy life. And I mean, doesn't that sound great? But after a period of time, the fruit of their life showed that these people were false prophets; that they were not, that they did not represent or really know or speak the truth of Christ. And later they uh, disappeared in some kind of sketchy circumstances. But in the process, they had confused a huge number of Christians there at UNCW. And in fact, there's still uh, still damage in some people's lives from that very event, those events a decade ago. So we might not be comfortable with this, but one application of what we're talking about here is we must use our judgment, and we might have to say that something is really wrong. I mean, that's very unpopular in our culture, particularly for anyone who wants to be liked by others. But if we are going to take Jesus' warning seriously, we must not simply adopt every teaching that sounds remotely biblical. Everybody's got a right to their opinion, but not every opinion is right. And as Christians, we need to use our judgment and say clearly but humbly, this is bad fruit. It's just two months ago that our, uh, my theology professor was saying, hey, praise the Lord, he just got uh, permission to write this book uh, that is a response to Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Which uh, one of the uh, contentions that Rob Bell makes in that book is, has to do with universalism and that love wins and there is no hell. And the way our professor went about writing his book is he said, you know what, there are a lot of things we can commend about what Rob Bell is saying, but there are some things that we cannot commend at all. He's not condemning the man, but he's saying that this is bad fruit. And this is also a call to know our Bibles The Berean principle is in effect here. The Berean principle from Acts 17 when um, Paul is preaching in in Berea. And And he commended the people there because they received the word with all eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see if things were really so. Is that an exercise you regularly perform when you hear someone teach? Do you examine the Scriptures to see if it's really so? God's Word should be the sounding board for every teaching we hear. And it should be the plumb line for our own teaching. And I'm not trying to advocate or put on you that you need to go out there and master the whole Bible, but I hope that the Bible will master you. I'm not telling you to go read your Bible in order to get through it all, but read it in order to get it through you, through your mind, into your heart, out your hands, so that you will produce good fruit. As Jesus directs his followers to eternal life in the kingdom, we must take these warnings about false prophets seriously. And so finally, Jesus warns us about the false profession. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, let's be honest. This is an alarming passage. Here Jesus warns his followers that many who call him Lord will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? How is this possible? Because it's a false profession. See verse 21. These are people who say, but they don't do. So how are we to respond to this warning? Well, we must do the will of God. Jesus says that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but... Those who do the will of my Father. Jesus describes a group that has done a lot of stuff in God's name. They're expecting to earn God's favor. And when they ask, you know, they're expecting an affirmative answer. Did we not prophesy? And did we not do mighty works? Did we not cast out demons in your name, in your name, in your name? They did these things in Christ's name, but they were Christians in name only. What characterizes the true Christian is not a loud profession, but true obedience to the will of the Father. So what is the will of the Father? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, This is God's will for you, your sanctification. Well, who's in charge of that? Well, he is, praise God, by the power of his Holy Spirit. So once again, doing the will of God is not frenzied religious activity, but it's a surrendering and a yielding to Him. And we must seek intimacy with God. We must do the will of God and we must seek intimacy with God. At the end of this section, Jesus says the same thing that He will later say to Judas. Depart from me. Why? Because Jesus says, I never knew you. Even despite all the activity in Jesus' name, Jesus looks him in the eye and says, I never knew you. I've got to be honest. That hurts me to hear that. Because the implication is that if Christ had ever known them, he would have loved them to the end, like it says in the Gospel of John. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't just mean that we know Christ. But Paul puts a different spin on this in Galatians when he says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So we know him, but like any intimate relationship, what seems to be critically important is that we also permit ourselves to be known by God, that he knows us. So I think Mary and Martha, the story from Luke 10, presents a good illustration here of what we're talking about. So Jesus enters a village and a woman named Martha invites him into her house, welcomes him in. She had a sister called Mary. And Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She sought intimacy with Jesus. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She was busy doing all this stuff for Jesus. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But Jesus says, Martha, you are worried and troubled by so many things, but only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen it. Mary has chosen the good portion, doing the will of God, letting me speak into her life, letting me shape it and form it with my words. And that's not going to be taken away from her see, all of Mary's religious activity wasn't leading to intimacy with God. We can do so much stuff for God without intimacy with God. She was right there attempting to serve God, but it was Mary who was doing the one thing that was necessary, doing God's will. Jesus gives us this warning regarding the danger of a false profession because there is such a fine line between being active in religious affairs and doing the Lord's will but they're not the same thing. And dizziness for God can distract us from experiencing intimacy with Him. Jesus is not saying that it is a bad thing to call Him Lord, Lord, but He's just saying it's, in, it's insufficient. Even the demons acknowledge that. It's easy to profess loyalty to Jesus, whether with your mouth or on a bumper sticker or on a Facebook page But the question is, are you doing the will of God and seeking intimacy with Him in every area of your life? In your office, what does doing the will of God look like? How is He informing and transforming your business practice? For those of you in school, what does it look like to do the will of God by letting Him sanctify, make you holy, redeem you, set you apart? What does it look like to do the will of God in your routines with your friends? How are you seeking intimacy with him? You know, I think we recoil at the idea of the prison guards putting a purple robe on Christ and calling him Lord and mocking him and beating him. But when we call him Lord, but then we don't do what he says or seek any intimacy with him, then we are mocking him in a very similar way. So we must take this warning seriously. So here we have the final parable, a summary illustration of the three warnings that Jesus has given us. What are those three warnings? Well, first, Jesus warns his followers about the false path. Instead, he calls us to enter through him and to depend on him. Second, he warns us about false prophets, and he calls us to judge their fruit and to know his word. And lastly, he warns us concerning false profession and he calls us to do his will and to seek intimacy with him and then Jesus tells this story about two men everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rain fell the floods came the winds blew beat upon the house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man he built his house on the sand, the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, he beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Initially there's only one difference between the wise man and the foolish man. Did you catch it? What describes the wise man? He who hears my words and does them. What describes the foolish man? He who hears my words and does not do them. I think this is a great danger for those of us attending church in Wilmington, North Carolina, here today. It would be so easily easy to merely hear Christ's words and never do them. But everything else in that final parable is built on that. Both of these men hear Jesus' words, but only the wise man does them. And by doing them, he is building his house, his habits of life, on the rock, That is the words of Jesus Christ. And then on that day, when the tempest of God's judgment comes, His house stands. It's only a few chapters later in Matthew when Peter confesses that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And do you remember Jesus' response? Yes, and you are Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Jesus is building his church on that confession, that rock. And Jesus' words are the rock on which we are to build our lives. And if we do, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is directing his followers to eternal life in the kingdom. And the church is a foretaste of that. And this kingdom belongs to those who hear Jesus' words and do them. Later in Matthew, Jesus laments how he longs to gather Jerusalem under his wings, but they would not listen. So he warns his followers against three main dangers that can keep them from doing what he commands. And this is so important because heaven and hell are in the balance. And as we put his words into practice, we will recognize an amazing thing, a miraculous thing, that Jesus Christ is the true way. He is the true prophet. And He is the true profession of the kingdom. When we surrender ourselves to Him by taking His warnings seriously, He will direct us to eternal life in the kingdom. Pray with me. Father God, I pray these words would make their way down into our our souls. Oh Lord, don't let us become numb to Your Word that we would hear it and be unchanged. Thank You, Lord, for Your Holy Spirit who intercedes and praise on behalf of us. And Lord, would you lead us to putting your words, your will, and your way into practice so that we might look forward to the day when we get to join you in your kingdom. Pray this in Christ's name.